This is Amanda. And this is Rachel. And this is Vocal Perspective. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Amanda, and I am here with Amy Engelhart. Hi. Hi, Amy. <laughs> so, I first got to know Amy as Amy Bob. So, she's been a person that I have been looking up to in this community for a long time. So, I thought maybe we'd get to know a little bit about Amy. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to know you when I was Amy Bob, so that's convenient. it's been such a no not a it's not even been that long of a time but you know it's in this community you get to that's one of the best parts about acapella is that you kind of if you try hard enough you can meet all of your heroes they're just everyone's there and ready to talk to you (laughs) (laughs) it's so funny like people say things when they go like oh my god and i'm like um <laughs> I mean, I'm so <laughs> flattered when people say that. And, you know, the Bobs were around before me, a long time before I was in them. So I, I'm proud to have inherited their demented legacy and hopefully <laughs> continued it. But, it, you know, and it was a blessing to, to get to do that. You know, I always say, I used to say to people, when it's happening, it's awesome. <laughs> because that's how yes. music, you know. And, <laughs> but it's just so funny, you know, that you, you just do what you do and you don't... Know, You do think about how people feel about it, but you're too busy doing what you do. Right. You know, and then people go, oh, my God, you guys are like the Acapella League of Justice or whatever. (laughs) And and we're like, wow, that's super cool. Uh, Right. Thank you. Well, I mean, for me, like I'd heard your recordings and, you know, I'd known about the Bob since I got into Acapella. And then first time I ever got to see you live was at Sing Strong. And I'll never forget you were wearing a skirt made out of ties and you were doing a guitar solo and you were on the ground. And I was like, I want to be like her. (laughs) (laughs) Truly is a wonderful event and it's been wonderful to see it grow over the years too because i think i was at the first or second one the bobs did one of those uh... yeah it was an early one that you guys were were at so how did you get into this crazy acapella world oh my gosh well um I'll try and make long story short. Uh, I was all of the geek in the chorus. I was always a theory geek and I was always, you know, the magical group person in high school and going, yeah, you know, that nine could be higher. And um, <laughs> I actually... That's how you make friends. That's right. Lots of friends. I'll be your hero one day, damn it. No. <laughs> no, no, absolutely no. That was not in the plan. I was supposed to be this Broadway performer thing. And that's what I geared most of my young life towards uh, as a kid and as a teenager. And so I was busy training as a theater artist and classical slash legit singer. And I did some, you know, pop stuff on the side. And I ended up eventually after undergrad at Syracuse in theater and doing a bunch of theater, I ended up at Berklee College of Music as a singing and arranging uh, singing, songwriting and arranging major. I'm going to take a pause and then stop and then come back to this because now there's something on the other side. <laughs> I'm now making noise. Hang on. Syracuse, Berkeley. So I was at Berkeley and you had to declare a instrument. So even though I do play piano, I'm not a great like player player, but I write on the piano and I score on the piano. I said voice. And I got with a teacher who was uh, who was way more pop, rock, and jazz. And she said, well, you obviously know you're doing technique-wise, so let's get rid of that vibrato. <laughs> <laughs> so she ran the Berkeley Vocal Jazz Ensemble and asked me to audition for it. So I did. And I'd always loved, like, Manhattan Transfer and stuff like that. And, and I really, really dug being in the Vocal Jazz Ensemble. Because for me, disappearing into a sound, disappearing into a chord is, that's it. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> just singing the crunchies and being in the middle of it. And I love doing it one on a part. And I preferred to stand next to someone who is not singing my part so that I can hear the buzz and hear the <laughs> and it, that just has always been the biggest boat floater for me. And I yearn to be in that place where something's coming through my face that is sound. <laughs> and I don't maybe even know what the vowel is, but I know that I'm buzzing. It's always been that way. So yeah. Yeah, I actually don't care if I never sing a solo again. And I've, I've, uh, it just doesn't, I mean, I do it obviously. And I have <laughs> been a solo artist and I perform as a solo artist, but in terms of like what, what the best musical experience for me is a lot of times it's just like, bye, I'm on the sharp nine <laughs> and you're on the <laughs> three. And we're, it's like know, a source of pride. You're like, Hey, like this, this is the best note in the whole chord. And I don't care if that guy over there doesn't even know what I'm doing, yeah. but I'm singing oh, yeah, it yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. I just love it. It's I, uh, but I've always been a big into collaboration and a big, big on group experiences because you know what we do involves an audience and just by definition performance experiences you know an interaction it's a transaction with an audience and with your fellow performers and that's always been really really important to me and so um i did that and then i kind of somebody gave me a cassette of the bobs and this would have been like 1990 and i was like oh this is cool and i you know threw it on the stack with everything else and (laughs) played it a couple times as i drove across Los Angeles. And um, eventually I was put in this caroling group because a lot of people do Christmas caroling. Professional singers do Christmas caroling out here and I believe where you are too in New York. Mm-hmm. And the head of the caroling group was a vocal jazz arranger, Michelle Weir, who just did that seasonally. She had a holiday singers group and sometimes Joe Bob Finetti was in it because he would be home and apparently they went to college together and I believe even dated and <laughs> they were that's how everything time. works I know they were big time pals so all of the people who were in that group most of them are still in the biz today it's kind of astounding it was a bunch of people who turned out to be educators and session singers and rangers Michelle didn't mess around it was all people who took it very seriously and were killer readers and because most of it's her jazz charts as well as you know couple traditional things but michelle has a very specific uh <laughs> a specific ear as most arrangers do and she's absolutely fabulous so i was hired on as an alto and i did a ton of gigs and in 1996 i was put in a quartet with michelle and joe and i can't remember who the bass was on the seinfeld set and it was the martini shot the the last you know the last uh thing they filmed before they go away for the holidays and we were not in the show we were just kind of like a backstage offset maybe even green room i don't know but it was it was on the lot and i'd never met joe and he was cracking michelle up like there is no tomorrow and if you know joe joe bob you know what a goon he was and i thought no no no, that's my job what why are you, i'm supposed to be the goon i'm the you know the cracker upper of and then it was revealed over the course of the conversation that they had just hired Lori bob rivera literally because janie bob had just left and in december they had done that massive search and i think they saw 200 women or something and oh my goodness yeah i know and you know having known who the bobs were I thought, wow, that's too bad I didn't know about that. That could have been an interesting turn for me. I was in L.A. not to do that, actually. I was in L.A. to be a writer, even though I wasn't technically doing that. I I wasn't having any any luck with it. I had a series of weird day jobs, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I just thought, 
Okay, well, that's good to know. But he was so funny that we hit it off and we walked back to our cars and we exchanged cards and I hired him several times over the next year to <laughs> sing demos because he's got this amazing rock tenor voice and he's so funny. And lo and behold, it didn't work out with Lori for various reasons, even though she was I would love to have her low notes. <laughs> and ironically enough, we had the same birthday. It was meant to be. Yeah, I guess so. It didn't work out over, over the course of the year and he said we're gonna we're gonna need someone because she quit in um january of 98 and he said we're gonna do another search but this time we're only going with people we know like highly recommended kind of screening them for outside issues that would affect because that's what it was it was outside issues it was not a musical mm -hmm. thing and which often happens and uh i auditioned <laughs> <laughs> and I went, it was at Joe's house and I sang Ruby Baby because I, you know, I'm in love with Donald Fagan's Nightfly album. And uh, <laughs> so I, I sang Ruby Baby and I threw in like a, a trumpet solo thing in the middle of it and I screwed it up. I screwed up the ending <laughs> and I immediately went, Hey, that, no, that wasn't right. That ending sucked. I'm going to do the ending again. And then I did the ending again and they laughed and it was like really funny. And then they called me back and we sat around Joe's girlfriend's kitchen table, me, Richard, Matthew and Joe. And they'd be like, do this. And I would do it. And they'd ask me questions like if we were in Iowa and you needed to wear a sash or a banner that said Miss Pork Rinds 1999 you know for a gig would that be okay with you and I said well it's in the trunk so if you'd like to look <laughs> at it it was just fun and it felt like I'd found these three crazy older brothers and they knew that I was really interested in writing um there's a big part of it so it worked out it it just I thought it to did. myself I was doing some sick temp 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 job at the time, office job, processing death claims at Transamerica Assurance Company. And, mm, <laughs> and I was like, that, that sounds, sounds so fun. fun. Oh, it was so fun and the best use of me. And I came out of that. I spent three hours there that night and I came out of it and I distinctly remember closing the door behind me and walking to my car and thinking, these people do not hire me. I'm going to have to kill them because <laughs> this was, <laughs> you know, I just, this was crazy. <laughs> And this is has to be. It has to be a thing. So you've talked a lot about, you know, how funny you are as a person and how funny all of the Bobs are. And you guys had quite the comedic magic, I think, for me anyway. I think humor is something that women tend to shy away from. Mm. What would you say to encourage more women to find that funny bone, to allow themselves to be funny? Because I know a lot of women that are funny, but they refuse to do that on stage in front of an audience. Gosh, you know, I have two, two thoughts on that. One is specific to being on stage with men, and the other is just, just training. I mean, I did years of improv comedy years of it with mainly male heavy groups because that's what those are a lot of the time mm -hmm. and being on stage is one thing so I'm completely comfortable as a performer on stage and then being able to instinctively but consciously find your slot when they shut up <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with love but they don't shut up at, usually and funny guys just usually don't stop talking because they know they're funny and and they are funny but if you 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 gotta kind of you just gotta know cool and not let the fact that it could bomb or whatever stop you because it's just, it just doesn't matter you know what I mean it, it's part of the experience it's 
It's also the, the second thought is that somebody said to me when I was in the bombs, they said, when you're funny, it's like you make it okay for them to be funny and not be considered strange, which I thought was a very fascinating thing to say. He said, when, mm-hmm. the, when the woman in the band goes along with it, it kind of makes it okay, which is, you know, I, I guess it's, a, it's an unconscious thing, but, you know, audiences bring to performances stuff that you won't think about. Or you know, right. they, they, or you know, assumptions on what they're seeing and hearing, and and that's a visual one. And I, it, it hadn't occurred to me that that was the case, but it is true that if you add this lightness and kind of like, I don't take myself seriously, but I take what I do seriously thing to it, I think that that's infectious. So I don't know. I mean, it depends what the level of the group is, you know, in terms in terms of how much that enters into their act. The Bobs are crazy. I mean everyone was funny in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. So so that's part of it too, though. And I, it, it harkens back to what I was saying about give and take is that, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have to be a little more conscious of that as a woman, that of the give and take. I mean, if anything, I started thinking I'm talking too much during a Bob show. Never, never <laughs> enough. You know, because I sometimes, you know, I would jump in and do the intro. We, nothing was scripted. Intros were not scripted. Of course, jokes were used and reused, but nothing was planned as to who introduces what. Because everyone would say something or you'd come up with something if someone was getting a glass of water or something. And, you know, if a joke was good, Richard would steal it and, um, <laughs> you know, an intro. or And it just made me laugh. It just made me yeah, we always joke that our best jokes come from being on the side of the stage when somebody else is out on stage, and then we make a crack backstage, and then we're like, next show, we're putting that in there. Yep, yep. Just kind of living on the edge of your brain and is and, and committing to it. But that's something that I've done while being observed <laughs> a lot. So um, I don't know. I'd just say, find your light, find your spot, be you, step up what's the worst thing that can happen? Exactly. You know, and that audience goes away. And if you mess up, then I feel like we actually, one of my shows, and this is probably one of the things I'm secretly most proud of, is one of the shows that we do, we've scripted it so that if, um, when we bring in a sub, if the sub makes a mistake, we just make it part of the show. And they kind of become a little bit of the clown or the, we just kind of make it funny. Yeah. And then the show keeps going. And that's always worked, especially when we're bringing in new people and they're like, um, I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't know if I'm ready to be here or do this, but... um. Right. Well, it's a gift in a way, you know, if you make a mistake, we'll just make it part of the show. Right. It's a gift. I mean, that's one of the reasons that live entertainment is so compelling is that that could happen at any time. And it's how you deal with it that that pretty much shows everyone how comfortable you are, how professional you are. I mean, stuff is going to happen. It happens in Broadway shows, you know, things break, things fall apart. People, you know. People love that, though. You know, you're in a show and it's memorable to see a to see a professional actor make a mistake and be human. Yeah, it's I always think it's one of the best things that could happen. Unless, of course, you're the producer and the set falls. (laughs) You know, and you have to kind of be like, hey, I'm going to dab dance while they fix the set behind, which has happened to me. But, (laughs) you know, yeah, it's it's a being in the moment thing. I always when I do solo shows now, I have this practice before I before I go on stage of just kind of thinking to myself how it's going to feel to be on stage and how much fun it's going to be and what the exchange is going to be like and what the energy is going to be like going back and forth with the audience and how it's going to feel. And this does not presuppose that I won't screw up. In fact, I assume that I will at some point. 
but that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's all part of the, it's all part of the live experience. And, you know, after a while it gets to be almost defines how you handle things, you know? So one of the other things that I think you do particularly well, and you had a lot of experience with the Bobs and now on on your solo tours, is you're on the road a lot. And I think a lot of women shy away from anything that requires them to go on an extended tour. Mm. Any tips for people that want to do this for a living? And why not be like, how to not be afraid of going out and just being on the road and oftentimes with a lot of dudes that need showers probably more often than they, they take them? Yeah, um... Well, it's a professional decision and an economic one. And if you're a person who is a professional musician, if you're in a city where there's a lot of local work, you are making the statement that you are a road gig. I know that I I lost out on a bunch of opportunities in Los Angeles when a lot more people could still make a living as session singers, um, which is not the case today because I was thought of as someone who was not there. And lo and behold, I was not there. And it's still true, even though I'm not in the Bobs anymore. I'm in New York a lot, or I'm traveling. It's a choice that you make knowing you're making the choice. So in a way, you are committing to being that person. I happen to do it for 14 years. I, you know, I sent out this newsletter that tells people where I am, where I'm doing shows, and apparently contractors get it and are on the list. I never looked, <laughs> you know, but I guess they signed up because they'll say to me, when I see them at events, oh, you're all over the place. You're blah, blah, blah. Where are you now? And I say, I'm standing in front of you, you know, talking to you. <laughs> but, but, but that can be both. Uh, it, it's a double-edged sword, you know. You can The benefits of being on the road are life experience and are can be financial, but you're out of town. I have a friend who's doing a Broadway tour right now. She's doing the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory tour. She, she, it's I'm so happy for her, but she knows that, People think she's on the road now, you know, and it's going to be a climb back. But in terms of being comfortable, gosh, you just have to take care of yourself. You just have to. And if you have relationships that you're leaving at home, which is so much easier to do now because of Skype and FaceTime and texting all the time. But if you're leaving relationships, it's it's a mental shift to a you have to become an I person instead of a we person when you're on the road. You have to really guard your time, guard your health. Just be careful in terms of your own physical and mental capabilities and be aware. I think that's the biggest advice I would say. I would say go for it. There's, I wouldn't trade what I've done for the world, meeting so many amazing people, good-hearted people, musical talents, having crazy experiences. Gosh, it's one of the joys of what we do. I think, and one of the benefits, whether you're four people in a rental car or you're being picked up at the baggage claim by, you know, a <laughs> total strangers. Yeah, total stranger. Which is why it's that you well, you know me obviously, so you know <laughs> you know I'm like, hi, I'm gonna go to this train station and someone's gonna pick me up. <laughs> I don't know who it's gonna be, but. And hopefully when I recognize them, they will actually honestly admit that they are the person there to pick me up and they're not taking me to their basement. Right, exactly. But you know, they're not, you know, they're just not. And especially in the world of what we do, no one's those cult people, which <laughs> except for those cult people. Um, it's just not. I mean, acapella people especially are the nicest most giving, warm-hearted, generous people. And we know what we do is kind of geeky and silly fun. 
and low tech fun, even though there's microphones involved, you know, it's basically, <laughs> yeah. basically a form of playing. Yeah. I've, it's really rare. I find that you meet like a bizarre, weird, mean person. <laughs> in they don't usually last very long. No, no. Cause you know, not fun to play with. We used to say our fans used to leave us the best gifts on stage. We'd walk out, but you know, they're Bob's fans, so they would leave flash drives, like thumb drives and you know, crazy goofy crap, you know, and how sweet is that? I uh, you know, the fans are the best part. Yes. So what do you have coming up soon? I know you're always on the road. What's where are you, Amy? <laughs> I do appearances as a singer-songwriter and play keyboard, so I play for myself usually. So I'm going to do a bunch of those, and then I'm doing two house concerts. And you can find out if you're listening to this and would like to attend on my website, which is amyanglehart.com. It's always a RSVP thing where you can find out from the person where it's going on, and you know about that. <laughs> they're so much fun. They're like secret concerts, and they're yes. great. Yes, yeah, secret concerts that you're invited to. Um, yes. <laughs> you just show up at a house of maybe someone that you know or someone that you know knows, and have some food and listen to some music. Yeah, and it's super cool. I, I really enjoy doing it as much as I enjoy playing large theaters because it's it's a cool experience. It's a cool interaction, and it's a win win for everyone. So I do about 10 of those a year and a lot of them are done at the homes of Bob's fans. So this is on my mind because I teach a lot of, um, I teach at a performing visual arts school and I'm working with very young creatives and I'm my job is to prepare them for a career, so some longevity. So for someone that's young in high school or college and just getting started, what are the keys, or at least in your opinion, to longevity in a fairly difficult career to make it in? It's harder than it's ever been to make a living in music there because of the death of the industry in terms mm -hmm. of um, compensation you will not make any money as a writer anymore the mp3 kind of killed that and honestly if i ever meet the dude who founded napster i will someone will not leave that room alive um <laughs> but obviously apple is to blame for some of this because right. you know when technology advances there's always a cost and who pays it <laughs> is determined by a lot of factors uh but mainly who doesn't pay it. And mm -hmm. the record industry did nothing to stem the tide of piracy, unlike the movie industry that got ahead of it technology-wise. The record industry didn't care. It is increasingly hard to, to do that. So although years ago I would have said, just know that you're doing what you love and have faith in, in your talent and your hard work, a, a lot of it is not about that, honestly. And talent and hard work is not a guarantee of anything. You have to be a person who is okay with not knowing what's going to happen right. for your life, <laughs> for the rest of your life. You have to be satisfied by what you do, but know that what you do on a daily basis does not define you and is not a referendum. And if things do not happen, usually has very little to do with you. It's one of the hardest things ever. And, you know, I, I hate sounding like a get off my lawn naysayer, but there just isn't room for it. There, there's just no room for Pollyanna-ing about this. I suppose if you have parents who are going to pay for your life, that's a different thing. I recommend, <laughs> this is going to sound horrible, but I recommend having a partner who, who is this 
civilian and who is not a musician or an artist, <laughs> um, because frankly, in the United States, you're going to need health insurance and you're going to need a lot of things starting out. And it's good to have a partner who keeps things grounded. It really is a difficult juggling situation, but you have to make the choice for yourself that there's absolutely nothing else that you can do that will make you happy. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn money that will make you happy. Nothing else. Be prepared to have a side hustle, whatever that is. Your B skills, which may even be A skills, are going to sustain you through these periods. And again, it, it's probably not going to be a straight line. It almost never is. If you enter this profession, you know that there are two million levels between I sing in my church choir and take six. You know, there's two million things that people don't see or talk about in terms of making a living between I sing, you know, with my friends on the weekend and we pentatonics. And it's just, you know, it, it's just if you have to, it's a, it's a soul searching thing and you have to be okay with these things. And if you're not, you'll find out. <laughs> and music is always there for you. Maybe it just doesn't put the roof over your head. Exactly. But you'll make another choice. And if it turns out to be what you do not do for your living, that's awesome. That's really awesome choice too. As long as you keep it in your life in some way. No one has to do this. <laughs> you know, even if you said that was what you were going to do. It, there's no gun to your head over there, Amy. Are you sure? I can see her that there's no gun to her head. Right, exactly. And you don't have to do it. You can make the choice tomorrow that other things that may have a path of a lot less resistance will enable you to live life you want to live. And as long as you keep music in your life and you keep singing in your life and, and you have a creative outlet, that I think is the most important thing. I mean, when there's times when I don't have anything going on, I have sung in volunteer choirs mm -hmm. because it's... Why would I not? <laughs> right? It's right. fun. I, I just joined one and it was, it was a good decision for me because it takes music away from being my job 100% of the yes. time. And yes. it, it brings it back to being fun again, which I needed. Yeah. And I'm sure they're thrilled to have someone like you. Hey, it helps. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And I'm sure it's inspiring to the people who, you know, who are at a different place or a different level in their singing to have someone like you around and you're thrilled to be there. So, you know, again, it's a group, a group happy. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to end. That was some really good advice that it's hard advice, but people need to hear it. They do. I mean, I'd, everybody would love to do this all the time. <laughs> Who does it? It's pretty cool when it's going well. It's a great job. Which brings us back to what I said. When it's happening, it's awesome. You know, I think that's one of the first things I said. Yeah. Yep. We're just going to way to wrap that up perfectly. <laughs> look at you. Storytelling 101. Well, thank you for joining us today, Amy. And I look forward to seeing you at a Secret House concert sometime <laughs> soon. Come back and visit us. Oh, yes. And I love being in the D.C. area. And in fact, if you're a Bob's fan, this may this may tickle you. You know, I have this tune called Fluffy's Master Plan for World Domination. Yes. Which is the true story, true adventures of a cat who will take over the world. I'm merely a reporter. <laughs> and, um, it was on the album Coaster which is almost 20 years old. Oh, jeez. I know. And I did it at a Gaithersburg, Maryland house concert last year with a string quartet. Beautiful. Yeah. And they recorded, they went into a studio and recorded what I arranged for them. Oh, I need to hear it. Yes. We, I have a video of us doing it, but at the house concert. But I said, you know, we need to record this. This is crazy because that's such an angular tune. And it's there's something about the timbre of, of strings that is kind of meow. 
like <laughs> and um, psychotic. So yeah, they just sent me the tracks that they did, and I'm going to uh, lay down a vocal and perhaps sell the MP3 as a benefit for some kind of animal charity. <laughs> I love it, just like I loved uh, Saint Nick Dick Pick, which <laughs> made my holiday. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Yay. the witty erudite highbrow comedy of saint nick dick pick my holiday single for the year (laughs) (laughs) all right well i have to go uh, speaking of i have to go pick up my dog that just got neutered (laughs) he's ready to come home now (laughs) perfect perfect well it's so great to see you and to talk to you it's good to see you too Wow, what an amazing episode, and thank you so much to Amy Englehart for taking her time and her experience and her wisdom for speaking with us. If you want to learn more about Amy, go to www.amyenglehart.com. That's A-M-Y-E-N-G-E-L-H-A-R-D-T.com. Find out more about what she's up to and what she's doing. And please be sure to tune in next week to Vocal Perspective, where we have the incredible Amy Malkoff, who is a veteran acapella performer, the heart of most festival planning, graphic design, and just all-around amazing person. So tune in next week to Vocal Perspective for Amy Malkoff, and an extra special thanks to you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.